Well, good afternoon, everyone. It is great to see you here this afternoon. I hope that you had a little bit of rest, and we had a wonderful fellowship in our previous meeting, and then also those of us who had a chance to eat some lunch together. That was really good. I really struck it rich because you guys have potluck on the once a month, and it happened to be that time. So very thankful for that privilege and that opportunity. I'm going to switch gears a little bit here this afternoon. There will be something that will be the same and something that will be different. So I will still look uh, to the sanctuary as kind of providing a macro view, but we're going to move on from issues in worship and issues in music. Now, if there's something that I want you to remember out of this presentation, and that is whatever is connected to the sanctuary has universal implications, all right? We looked at that this morning when it, come, when it came to issues of worship and music. There are universal implications that are connected with that sanctuary service. We're going to move on from that area. We're going to discuss some other areas to see when we, once we put on those sanctuary lenses, what does it do for us? Uh, what kind of vision does it give us about some of the subjects that we're going to uncover? So that's the approach we're going to take this afternoon. Just bow your heads with me as I pray. Our gracious, loving, heavenly Father, Lord, we are just so thankful for the eternal platform of truth that you have given to us as a church, as a denomination. That which brought us into existence should be like a guide to lead us all the way to the city of God. We pray this afternoon that you will please be with each and every one within the sound of my voice. You know the burdens, you know the challenges that each person carries, and I pray that all these burdens would be lifted at Calvary, and I pray that as a result of what is presented this afternoon, we might draw closer and still closer to you. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. Okay, well I got to talk a little bit about music. Now I want you to pretend that that is the score to Beethoven's Fifth Symphony. I'm just kind of picking Beethoven's Fifth because it's a, a very well-known uh, symphony. And in order to play it correctly, you have to have all the, all the right notes played by all the right instruments at the right time. Now, for those of you that don't have perfect pitch, by the way, that's a phenomenon in which all the person needs is a sheet of music, and then the music actually sounds in the person's brain in the right key, all right? In the right key. Now, if you have that, you have a tremendous edge when it, comes to, when it comes to music. There is no doubt about that. But to most of us, as we look up on that screen, it's just a series of notes. That's pretty much all it is. It's just a bunch of random data, and data needs something to process it. So as we're thinking about Beethoven's Fifth Symphony, it needs, um, it, it, it needs something to process all that data. Now, let's, let's imagine that I pick the ukulele in order to process all that data that's up on the screen that supposedly is Beethoven's Fifth Symphony. What's going to happen to some of that data? Well, first of all, the data calls for the notes being played by different instruments. So if you, ch if you choose a ukulele as the system to interpret all that complex data, well, first of all, um, anything that's more than maybe four-part harmony is going to be immediately discarded. As a ukulele, as far as I understand, has four strings. So, so anything that's beyond that, sorry, the data's there, we just can't use it. Second, 
the data calls for processing the notes with different instruments. So you're only going to hear one kind of sound. But the data calls for many kinds of sounds. Well, it doesn't matter. You chose the wrong, you chose the wrong system to process all the data. Well, then let's imagine we go to the piano. Well, you're going to get all the complex harmonies there. There's nothing that's going to be left out. But you still have the second problem. And that is the data calls for different instruments to process it. But you only got one. So something's going to be discarded. Now, if you pick, like, the London Symphony Orchestra as the system, or Chicago Symphony Orchestra, or whatever it is that's around here, you have the right system to interpret all the notes, and nothing is lost. Well, we have a whole bunch of data here. That's the Bible. A whole bunch of data. A whole bunch of data and data and data and data and data. And something that a person trained in systematic theology looks for is the integration between the one and the many. That's a problem in philosophy, and that's a problem in theology as well. So you're looking at the integration of the data and how it all fits together, and you better pick the right system. Well, anciently, theology was done on the basis of Greek philosophy, and that meant the data was really discarded and misinterpreted and mangled and jangled and so forth and so on. But we have the heavenly sanctuary, and the sanctuary functions as the proper system to actually interpret a lot of big, huge, broad things that are connected with worship and life and ethics and mission and so forth and so on. So just another analogy there uh, that's, that is a mosaic. Now, we're, we're mostly conditioned to think of doctrines as kind of like the little blocks in that mosaic. So we put together, well, here's your law, law box, and it's colored green, and so then you got all the texts that talk about the law, and then you've outlined that perfectly. And then you got your Sabbath block, and then you do the same thing. And then you got your heavenly sanctuary block, and you do the same thing. And sometimes we think that the 28 fundamental beliefs are kind of like the colored blocks in a mosaic, that they're just kind of joined together, but not really integrated. And so another aspect of systematic theology is, yes, how is the whole data put together and why? So the sanctuary is not one of the colored blocks in that mosaic. The sanctuary then would tell us what the picture should look like, where the purple should go, that you have grapes, that you have other designs. It it, 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 it orders, systematizes, and interprets the entire thing, okay? So that's what I want you to think about when we're thinking about this exercise that we're going to do. It gives us a window into everything that is connected to the sanctuary, and then it helps us to interpret those things that are connected to it. That's really the role that it plays. The first thing it does, among many other things, is that, inter that, is that it, it interprets God. Now, in 1 Kings chapter 8, verse 27, we covered this earlier, this was when Solomon was, was offering his dedicatory prayer to the temple that was just erected. And in the stream of that prayer, he says these words in 1 Kings chapter 8, verse 27, But will God indeed dwell on earth? Behold, heaven and the heaven of heavens cannot contain you, how much less this temple which I have built. 
Now, when we talk about the sanctuary to our other Christian friends, whether they're Catholic or evangelical, the immediate response is, you know, you can't put God in a box. Because we talk about him moving from the holy place to the most holy place, and they're like, you know what, you really can't put God in a box. Now, if they have a problem with God, with Jesus, moving from the holy place to the most holy place, what on earth are they going to do about the incarnation? That's a much smaller box, is it not? And yet, the I am became flesh and dwelt among us. And the reason why they, their brain just can't wrap around that because they have the Greek concept of God in eternity in which God is completely incompatible with time and space. And so this is a big, huge conundrum for them. All right? But think about this. The one doctrine where supposedly God is placed in a box is the doctrine that informs us that he's not only inside the box, he's outside the box and in levels that we can't even comprehend. The heaven of heavens, it says, cannot contain you. And this thought is so overpowering that Solomon actually mentions it three times. This is just one of those times. The other times is in 2 Chronicles chapter 2, verse 6, and then 2 Chronicles chapter 6, verse 18. This idea that the heaven of heavens cannot contain you. So the universe is not all the reality that exists. God exists in a reality that is outside. A reality probably that you and I will never, ever, ever experience. So the one doctrine that supposedly has God in the box, Solomon reveals to us that he's also outside the box. By contrast, Satan is the God of this world or the God of this age. 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 4. When the sanctuary is abandoned, you have pantheism or panentheism. In 1 Kings chapter 12, verse 28, Jeroboam said, These be thy gods, O Israel, which brought thee up out of the land of Egypt. The divine presence was confused with nature, and the result is national idolatrous gods. All the gods of the peoples are idols, it says in Psalm chapter 96, verse 5. But in the sanctuary, God is not part of the furniture. He's not, you know, he's not part of the furniture. He's transcendent to the furniture. That's what a plain reading of the Bible actually tells us. The other thing that the sanctuary does is that it distinguishes between the roles of the Godhead as well. When you think about the day of Pentecost, what was the cause of the Holy Spirit being poured out? Did it just kind of happen and no one knows why it happened? Well, if we read Acts chapter 2, verse 33, the Bible actually informs us as to what the cause is. Acts chapter 2 and verse 33. As Peter is waxing eloquent in that sermon, it says in Acts chapter 2, verse 33, Therefore, being by the right hand of God exalted, and having received of the Father the promise of the Holy Ghost, he has shed forth this which you now see and hear. That was a response to a question that was asked in, uh, in chapter 2, verse 12. As the disciples started to speak in all the languages that existed at that time, this was the question that people were asking. It says, and they were all amazed, and they were in doubt, saying one to another, what meaneth this? What explanation is there for this? And Peter says, you know what the explanation is? Jesus is not dead. 
but he's actually alive and he's been inaugurated as our heavenly high priest. Something has been taking place in that heavenly sanctuary that the Holy Spirit was a witness of and because he witnessed that, he wants to communicate it to us on earth and that was the cause of the Holy Spirit being poured out to validate the idea that Jesus is not dead but he's very much alive and he's interceding on our behalf in that heavenly sanctuary. So what it also does is that it delineates the different roles that exist in the Godhead. The son is inaugurated as the high priest next to his father in the heavenly sanctuary and the Holy Spirit is poured out to validate what has taken place in the heavenly sanctuary. So that is the brain center. That is where things happen. And when things happen up there, there is a corresponding effect down here as the Holy Spirit gets poured out, witnessing to what happens up there and then validating everything that Peter was preaching. Then you have Acts chapter 4 and 5. We spent a little bit of time on that in the previous lecture earlier today. And in those two chapters, you have the Father who is seated on the throne. You have the 24 elders surrounding him. You have the four living creatures surrounding him. And in chapter 5, verse 1, he has a scroll in his right hand that no one in the universe is qualified to read and to take from him except for the Lamb of God. So the Father most likely originated the content that was in that scroll. And this is a massive sanctuary scene that is taking place, in which this is taking place. The Son breaks the seals and reveals it to the worshipers in the heavenly sanctuary, and then the Spirit reveals it to us on earth. Revelation chapter 5 and verse 6, it says this. It says, And I beheld, and lo, in the midst of the throne, and in the, in the, the four beasts, and in the midst of the elders, stood a lamb as it had been slain, having seven horns and seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God, sent forth into all the earth. So again, the Father is seated on the throne. The Son is right in front of him. He takes the scroll. The Spirit is pictured in chapter 4, verse 5, as the seven lamps of fire burning before the throne. So all of the geography in the heavenly sanctuary also points to the different roles that each of the Godhead are playing in the plan of salvation. So this is one way in which the sanctuary sheds some light on the work that the Godhead is doing. Something else. The sanctuary and the great controversy theme as a universal theme. Now again, in Revelation chapters 4 and 5, the throne is mentioned 19 times. In the book of Revelation, there are 46, I can't remember, 46 or 47 mentions of the throne of God, 19 of which are in those two chapters. What this is telling us is that there is a battle over the throne. Who has the right to sit on the throne? That was highly contested. In Daniel chapter 8, verse 11, this is describing the activity of the little horn. It's said that the place of his sanctuary is cast down. In other words, the little horn would cast down the place of God's sanctuary. This is obviously talking about the heavenly sanctuary. So how's the little horn to do that? Is it just to fly up to heaven and just kind of wrench the sanctuary off its foundations? That's obviously not what's what, what is referring to here. What it's saying is that the sanctuary would lose its hermeneutical, um, its, uh, it, it would lose its role, 
in providing meaning to all the things that are associated with it. It would lose its role when providing meaning about the plan of salvation. It would lose its role in providing meaning about worship. It would lose its role in providing meaning about mission and education and so forth and so on. And they did that by the introduction of that Greek philosophical framework. And, you know, the book of Revelation is, is saturated with sanctuary imagery. Now, I have 37 volumes of the early church fathers on my computer. Like each one about like this thick. Do you know how much time they spend on the heavenly sanctuary? You can text search it. Zero. How is that? How is it that when the, 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 when the book of Revelation was written, this was in the 90s sometime, and then just several decades later, a century later or two, zip, crickets, nada, nothing, whatever language you want to, you, to, you know, to communicate that. 37 volumes, nothing. And that was the power of that, of that Greek intellectual idea of those ideas that began to permeate the early church. So when the little horn would cast down the place of his sanctuary, it was by the inculcation of those Greek ideas. He would think to change times and laws. So this is, is a direct strike on the throne of God, a direct strike on that heavenly sanctuary. Notice Isaiah chapter 14 in a passage that most of us, I believe, know very well. Isaiah chapter 14, verses 12 to 14. The book of Isaiah chapter 14, verses 12 to 14. It says, How art thou fallen from heaven, O Lucifer, son of the morning? How art thou cut down to the ground which didst weaken the nations? For thou hast said in thine heart, I will ascend into heaven. I will exalt my throne above the stars of God. I will sit also upon the mount of the congregation in the sides of the north. I will ascend above the heights of the clouds. I will be like the most high. Notice in the middle of verse 13, I will exalt my throne above the stars of God. So there is a battle over the throne. This is what the sanctuary reveals. In the book of Ezekiel, you find some of the four living creatures that were also mentioned in the book of Revelation. So I'm going to read Ezekiel chapter 1, verses 4 and 5. Ezekiel chapter 1, verses 4 and 5. It says, And I looked, and behold, a whirlwind came out of the north, a great cloud and a fire enfolding itself, and a brightness was about it. And out of the midst thereof, as the color of amber, out of the midst of the fire. Now remember, those four living creatures are in the midst of the throne, all right? And in verse 5 it says, And uh, also out of the midst thereof came the likeness of four living creatures, and this was their appearance. They had the likeness of a man. And then it continues to describe them. Jump down to verse 26 of Ezekiel chapter 1. It says, And above the firmament that was over their heads was the likeness of a throne. Again, there's a throne in the book of Revelation. There's a likeness of a throne as the appearance of a sapphire stone. And upon the likeness of the throne was the likeness of the appearance of a man above upon it. And I saw as the color of amber, as the appearance of fire round about within it, from the appearance of his loins even upward and from the appearance of his loins even downward, I saw as it were the appearance of fire and it had brightness round about 
As the appearance of the bow that is in the cloud in the day of rain, so was the appearance of the brightness round, round about. This was the appearance of the likeness of the glory of the Lord. And when I saw it, I fell upon my face and I heard a voice of one that spake. Now, if you jump to Ezekiel chapter 28, a well-known passage describing Satan and Lucifer, it says there in verse 13, under the figure of this lamentation on the king of Tyre. So the king of Tyre was a fitting symbol of Satan here. It says, thou wast in Eden, the garden of God. The king of Tyre was not there. He's being used as a symbol, as a figurehead to talk about the enemy. Thou wast in Eden, the garden of God. Every precious stone was thy covering. And then it mentions all those precious stones. Then it says, the workmanship of thy tabrets and of thy pipes was prepared in thee in the day that thou wast created. And some see a, a reference here to the special musical gifts and abilities that Lucifer had. Verse 14, thou art the anointed cherub. There's the sanctuary language there that covereth. And I have set thee so. Thou wast upon the holy mountain of God. Thou hast walked up and down in the midst of the stones of fire. So he was one of those. Like you find the, those, the, those, those four living creatures. He was one of them. He was the anointed cherub. You were perfect from the day that you were created till iniquity was found in thee. God did not create a devil. He made himself one. But I want you to go back to Revelation chapter 4, verse 6, and 5, verse 6. So notice, he was there in the midst in the book of Ezekiel. But as I read Revelation chapter 4, verse 6, you're going to notice something, conspic his conspicuous absence. It says, And before the throne there was a sea of glass like unto crystal, and in the midst of the throne and round about the throne were the four beasts full of eyes before and behind. Now jump to chapter 5, verse 6. It says, and, beheld, and I beheld, and lo, in the midst of the throne, and in the midst of the beasts, and in the midst of the elders, stood a lamb as it had been slain, having seven horns and seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God, sent forth into all the earth. So Satan is missing from the midst of the throne. Why is he missing from the midst of the throne? Because the lamb has overcome him. The lamb has overcome. The great I am took upon human flesh. He came in the likeness of sinful flesh, is what it says in Romans chapter 8, verse 3. And he defeated him in that weakness. God didn't just, you know, if Satan had asked, had, had, you know, had said, hey, hey Lord, um, let's have an arm wrestle, and the one who wins is going to be right. Well, that, you know, that would have been over. Um, hey, let's see who can run, the, you know, the 100 meters the fastest. Well, you know, that, that would have been over. But when he said, you know what, I'm more right than you are, you know, what was God to do? Just take out his bazooka and blow him away? That'll learn you for asking questions. That wouldn't have solved a single problem. And so God had to be long-suffering. And so long-suffering that he would make the ultimate sacrifice. You know, when I talk about the incarnation to a group of young people, I say, pick your favorite animal. Pick your favorite animal. Dog, cat, dolphin, chimpanzee, you know, you name it. And I want you to imagine that that animal is about to go extinct. And the only way to save it is if you become one of them. How many of you are willing to trade your brain and the way you operate for the brain of one of those animals? That's a sacrifice. 
That's how God won the battle in human weakness. And he offers that to us as a, as a victory. So the sanctuary reveals a great controversy. And this conflict enters into every phase of our experience. There is no phase of our experience in which this is untouched. So what about you and me this afternoon? Are we allowing God into every phase of our experience? Are we allowing him to, to are, we, are we saying, Lord, search me, try me, see if there be any wicked way in me and lead me in the way everlasting? Or are some of those doors closed in our lives? Now, if we're closing the door to God, then we're automatically opening it to another presence. This conflict enters into every phase, and it is universal because that scene in Revelation 4 and 5 is a universal scene, and it, and it covers the inhabitants of heaven and earth. There is a universal battle. So the sanctuary illustrates that the great controversy theme is universal. Now, what's that controversy over? Well, the sanctuary also illustrates the unchanging nature of God's law for the universe. The throne represents the law of God. So turn with me in your Bibles to Revelation chapter 4, verses 1 and 2, and then we're going to circle back to 3, 7 and 8, and then Revelation 11, verse 19. This is all dealing with this open door in heaven. So Revelation chapter 4, verses 1 and 2, I want you to notice this. It says, after this, I looked, and behold, a door was opened in heaven. So it implies that it was once closed, but now it's open. And the first voice which I heard, as it were, of a trumpet talking with me, which said, Come up hither, and I will show thee things which must be hereafter. And immediately I was in the Spirit, and behold, a throne was set in heaven, and one sat on the throne. So as soon as that door is open, the first thing John sees is a throne, and someone seated on it. Now I want you to go to Revelation chapter 3, verse 7 and 8. This is the church of Philadelphia. It says, and to, the, and to the angel of the church in Philadelphia write, These things saith he that is holy, he that is true, he that has the key of David, he that openeth and no man shutteth, and shutteth and no man openeth. I know thy works. Behold, I have set before thee an open door, and no man can shut it. For thou hast a little strength, and hast kept my word, and hast not denied my name. This is the experience of the church in Philadelphia before the church of Laodicea. So this is a door that is leading into the most holy place. So this door is about to be opened during the experience of the church in Philadelphia. And then when you get to chapter 4, verse 1 and 2, which we just read, when that door is open, the first thing you see is a throne and someone seated on it. Now turn with me to Revelation chapter 11 and verse 19. Revelation chapter 11, verse 19, it says, And the temple of God was opened in heaven, and there was seen in his temple the ark of his testament. And there were lightnings and voices and thunderings and earthquake and great hail. So in chapter 4, verses 1 and 2, when the door is open, John sees a throne and someone seated on it. In Revelation chapter 11, verse 19, when the temple of God is opened, then he, then he sees the ark of his testament. So this throne represents the law of God. And again, this is a universal scene because in Revelation chapter 5, verse 13, it mentions the throne there 
and it mentions the entire universe. And every creature which is in heaven and on earth and under the earth and such as are in the sea and all that are in them heard I saying, Blessing and honor and glory and power be unto him that sitteth upon the throne and unto the Lamb forever and ever. The law provides the unchanging structure for our relationship with God and the universe. That's what it does. And the eternal security of the universe depends upon God's unchanging laws. Now, it illuminates also something else. When God speaks, he speaks to the inhabitants of heaven and to the inhabitants of earth at times simultaneously. In uh, chapter 5, verses 3 and 4, no one in the universe can open the scroll, look at it, or read it. Revelation chapter 5, verses 3 and 4. Now, the content of that scroll is being opened for the inhabitants of heaven, but in chapter 5, verse 6 of the book of Revelation, it is the Holy Spirit that is sent forth into all the earth in order to declare everything that is happening up there, including the implications of that scroll which is being opened. But you'll have to wait for another presentation for the content of that scroll. The point here is that this is a universal message that is declared in that scroll. Turn with me to the book of Hebrews chapter 12. Hebrews chapter 12, and we can see clearly here that God speaks when, uh, uh, in heaven and on earth simultaneously. So I'm going to pick it up with, with um, in Hebrews chapter 12, verse 24, because it says that we are come to Mount Zion, the heavenly Jerusalem. And in chapter 12, verse 24, it says, And we are come to Jesus, the mediator of the new covenant, and to the blood of sprinkling that speaks better things than that of Abel. See that you refuse not him that speaketh. For if they escape not who refuse him that spake on earth, much more shall not we escape if we turn away from him that speaks from heaven. So the book of Hebrews is telling us here that God is actually speaking to us from heaven. So how is God speaking to us from heaven? You know, do we just kind of like listen and see if we can hear an audible voice? The key to answering that question is in verse 24, because it says in verse 24 that you are come to the blood of sprinkling that speaks better things than that of Abel. Well, obviously, this is not literal language because blood doesn't scream out audibly. So in what, how does blood speak? This, again, is a sanctuary context. So we're, when we're trying to figure out the way in which God spe uh, blood speaks, we ought to interpret that within the confines uh, and the context of the sanctuary in which it is written. Blood speaks by the ritual actions that the priests performed. All those rituals that were given to them, you know, like the book of Leviticus that everyone just loves to read. So all those rituals were given therein to communicate in compact form what the gospel would be like and what Jesus' high priestly ministry would be like. That is compared to a mode of speech. And in Hebrews chapter 1, verse 1, it says, God, who at sundry times and in diverse manners spoke in times past to the fathers has in these last days spoken unto us by his Son. So it says there that God speaks in various ways. One of the ways that he speaks is through the ritual actions that those priests would perform. 
So when Jesus is now in the most holy place of the heavenly sanctuary, performing the work of the day of atonement, the Bible is basically telling us that that is a form of speech and we should be listening to what he is saying uh, as he goes through those rituals in the heavenly sanctuary, as he is blotting out the sins of his people, that is a form of communication. That's what Hebrews is telling us. And notice, this is taking place, this is speaking in heaven and on earth. In Deuteronomy chapter 4, verse 36. Deuteronomy chapter 4, verse 36 and 39. I'm going to turn there for a moment. And you can see that in the giving of the law, God not only spoke from the midst of the fire, but he spoke from another direction as well. So Deuteronomy chapter 4, verse 36, it says, Out of heaven he made you hear his voice, that he might instruct you. And upon earth he showed thee his great fire, that thou, that thou heardest his words out of the midst of the fire. So notice that. Out of heaven he made you to hear his words, and then on earth, out of the midst of the fire. Notice verse 39 it says, Know therefore this day and consider it in thine heart that the Lord, he is God in heaven above and upon the earth beneath there is none else. So just as God's presence envelops heaven and earth, when he speaks, he's speaking to heaven and earth simultaneously here. What are the implications of this? The moral content associated with God's law and his word did not originate in the time and culture in which the Bible writers wrote. That is one massive implication of this. If the content is for those in heaven, how does anybody here on earth know that? How does any culture know what heaven requires and what heaven needs? But if God speaks, and when he speaks, he speaks to those inhabitants of heaven and also on earth, it means that the content of Scripture did not arise out of any earthly culture. The fancy term for that is higher criticism, which assumes that the Bible is just a human book written under the influence of the times and the culture in which that person wrote it. Something else that the sanctuary does it points to a universal church, actually. So go back to Hebrews chapter 12. Hebrews chapter 12, verses 22 and 23. Hebrews chapter 12, verse 22 and 23, it says, But when we are come together for corporate worship, you are come unto Mount Zion and unto the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, and you're come to an innumerable company of angels, to the general assembly and, there's the word there, church of the firstborn. Now the word firstborn is plural in the Greek language, so it's not talking about Jesus. It's talking about uh, the firstborn ones, okay? Referring to those of us that are coming to that heavenly sanctuary, which are written in heaven and to, the God, and to God the judge of all and to the spirits of just men or the spirits of the righteous made perfect. If we want to know how our spiritual nature can become fully mature and fully perfect, it's by contemplating what Jesus is doing up there. It's by recognizing that God is going to make no exceptions for any one of us because he delivered his son up for us all. He's not going to make any exceptions. The law is not going to be bent for you or for me or for anybody else. 
But without the sacrifice of Christ, you, you and I are powerless to keep that law. We cannot keep it without the inculcating the principles of the righteousness of Christ. It is not possible. But notice here that the sanctuary reveals a universal church. You are coming to a church where the presence of God is, but also to a church where there is an innumerable company of angels. So the presence of God is actually the key to the church because everyone is surrounding God. All right? Now, I first began to think about this when I thought about a passage written in the book Patriarchs and Prophets that began to describe these huge interconnections. And I'm going to, just going to read this for you. It says, Beyond the inner veil was the Holy of Holies, where centered the symbolic service of atonement and intercession, and which formed the connecting link between heaven and earth. So that's what got my attention there. So she's obviously describing what's going on in the most holy place, and this then forms the connecting link between heaven and earth. I thought, okay. In this apartment was the ark, a chest of acacia wood overlaid within and without with gold, and having a crown of gold about the top. It was made as a depository for the tables of stone upon which God himself had inscribed the Ten Commandments. That's Patriarchs and Prophets, page 348, paragraph 2. Another place in which the church seems to be much more universalized is Revelation chapter 12. Revelation chapter 12 reveals that the warfare on earth is a continuation of the warfare that began in heaven over God's law. Uh, it begins in Revelation uh, chapter 12 with this, with this scene of a, of, of a woman, and I'm just going to read a few verses here just so that you get the idea. Revelation chapter 12, verse 1, There appeared a great wonder in heaven, a woman clothed with the sun and the moon under her feet, and upon her head a crown of 12 stars. Now, how do we know that this is not just an ordinary human woman? Because in verse 13, it says, And the dragon saw that he was cast to the earth, or when he saw that he was cast to the earth, he persecuted the woman which brought forth the man, and to the woman were given two wings of a great eagle that she might fly into the wilderness. Now, a lot of young guys are looking for something very special in a young lady, but two wings like a great eagle, um, yeah, sorry guys, you're just not going to find that. You might as well just cross that off the list and go someplace else, all right? So this is letting you know, this is not talking about a literal woman, because there is no literal woman that looks like that, that can fly like that. So this is obviously talking about God's church. And this woman gives birth to a male child, you find that in verse 5, and that child is caught up to God and to his throne, obviously a reference to Jesus. And then the woman fled into the wilderness where she has a place prepared of God that they should feed her a thousand two hundred and three score days. So not a literal woman, not a literal time period, and not eating literal food. We're talking about she's fed by the Bible because uh, she had to go into the wilderness in order to really put into practice the principles of the Bible. That's the only place that she, could, that she could do that. Now, there's an intermission in verse 7, and then it says, there was war in heaven. And Michael and his angels fought against the dragon, and uh, they prevailed not. Neither was their place found anymore in heaven, and they were all cast out here to the earth. So the battle that ensued in heaven has been, been carried on here on earth, and uh, so there was the woman in heaven, and there's the woman here right now. And what are they fighting over? 
Verse 17, the dragon was wroth with the woman and went to make war with the remnant of her seed, which keep the commandments of God and have the testimony of Jesus Christ. They are fighting about the character of God as revealed in his law. So the church in heaven and on earth declare their allegiance to God by the, their allegiance to his law. In Revelation chapter 19, verse 10, um, the angel reveals himself to John as a fellow servant and brother. Notice that. I'm going to read that, Revelation chapter 19, verse 10. John is just so overpowered by the revelation that he's given by this angel. And, he, and, and, he, and then it says, And I fell at his feet to worship him, and he said to me, See thou do it not, I am your fellow servant, and of your brethren that have the testimony of Jesus. Worship God for the testimony of Jesus is the spirit of prophecy. So the angel is telling John, he says, Look, we're brethren. I'm part of the brethren in heaven. And you're part of the brethren on earth. That means we're all part of the same family. Now, this one really was the clincher. Ephesians chapter 3, verses 14 and 15. Paul says, For this reason I bow my knees to the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, from whom the whole family in heaven and earth is named. There's one family. And that family comprises the inhabitants of heaven and earth. So the church is not just the church on earth. The church is the church in heaven combined with the church on earth. Now notice this statement from Testimonies volume, three, uh, volume 6, page 366. The church of God below is one with the church of God above. Believers on earth and beings in heaven who have never fallen constitute one church. That is an amazing, amazing statement. So if you just look at the terms church and do word searches on them, you're never going to come up with this. You're not going to come up with it. But if the presence of God in the sanctuary is the key to integrating all of these things, you have a, you have a more deductive approach in which it shines light on some of these subjects. All right, now I'm just kind of throwing that out there and whetting your appetite on that. Then, uh, well, if the church is universal, the sanctuary also looks at a universal definition of sin as well. Now, I'm going to go to Romans chapter 3 um, for a moment. Romans chapter 3, around verse 23, 24, 25. Romans chapter 3. And in verse 25... It says, whom God, referring to Jesus here, and you find that in verse 24 that he is the context, whom God has set forth to be a propitiation through faith in his blood to declare his righteousness for the remission of sins that are passed through the forbearance of God. Actually, that text is in a sanctuary context. When it says that God has sent forth Jesus... When did he send him forth? The plan of salvation was not an afterthought. It was not like the heavenly, you know, inhabitants sinned and then the folk on earth sinned and God said, you know, what am I going to do now? Uh, no, no, no. It was not an afterthought. This is called predestination, okay? God had a plan long before all this stuff ever worked out. And in that plan, he had already set forth Christ to be the propitiation. Now, that's an unfortunate translation, 
because the exact same word is used in Hebrews chapter 9, verse 5, and it's translated as mercy seat. Okay? That's what it is translated as. The exact same word is translated as propitiation in Romans chapter 3, verse 25, but in Hebrews 9, where Paul is clearly and methodically talking about the articles of furniture that are in the sanctuary, that exact same Greek word is translated as mercy seat. So this means that our concepts of righteousness, our concepts of sin, our concepts of the plan of salvation must be grounded in that heavenly sanctuary service. So when the evangelicals see blood, they restrict it to the cross, right? Because for them, there is no 1844. For them, there is no movement from the holy to the most holy place. And so blood only has meaning when it's connected to the sacrifice. But in the sanctuary service, that was only one part of something very vital. The blood then had to be applied on the day of atonement, and that has massive implications for justification, for sanctification, for growth and holiness and all these subjects, and for our understanding of sin. So if God sent forth Christ, and if God had predestined us, he has predestined us to be in accordance with his law. Let me read Ephesians chapter 1, verse 4. Ephesians chapter 1 and verse 4 for a minute here. It's a little bit clearer there. Ephesians chapter 1 and uh, verse 4. Notice what it says here. It says, according as he has chosen us in him. When was this choice made? Before the foundation of the world. Okay, so for what purpose did he choose us or what was the goal? That we should be holy and without blame before him in love. So that's what God created us for. And sin didn't change that. In our fallen condition, he instituted the plan of salvation so that we could meet the original goal for which he created us. And he created all of the inhabitants of heaven and on earth to be holy. Well, what is holiness? The Romans 7.12 says, Wherefore the law is holy and just and good. To be in accordance with the principles of that law. So that must mean that there's only really one universal definition of sin that applies to the entire inhabitants of heaven and earth. So if the church is a universal church, then there's only one universal definition of sin. This is alluded to in 2 Peter chapter 2, verse 4, 5, and 6. Notice in 2 Peter chapter 2, verse 4, it says, For if God did not spare the angels who sinned, all right, it says the angels sinned. And then in verse 5, it says, and it did not spare the ancient world but save Noah. The implication is that he also sinned. And then in chapter 2, verse 6 of 2 Peter, and turning the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah into ashes because they sinned. So you have two categories of intelligent beings there. You have angels, and it says they sinned. And then you have human beings on the one side of the flood and on the other side of the flood, and they sinned. At the end of the day, angels don't sin in a different way than we do. They had the controversy before them, and when they chose Lucifer over God, they sinned. You know what this means? Your sinful nature, for the Christian 
who has access to the grace of God and the power of God in their lives. For the Christian, your sinful nature is not the cause of sin. It isn't the cause of why you and I sin. It's not a universal cause. It's a condition which we have right now. Oh, yeah, it's, 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 it, it, I mean, you might as well throw a 100-pound sack on your back. Yes, no question about it. But it is not the cause. It is not the cause. Sin is the transgression of the law. That is the only universal definition that applies to the inhabitants of heaven and to the inhabitants of earth. And that's based on the fact that the church is a universal church as well. Well, then we end off, of course, with Jesus. The lamb's body was put upon the altar. Christ's death on the cross made the universe eternally secure. So let's speak now of the universal results of salvation. The sanctuary teaches that the cross, Christ's high priestly ministry, the investigative judgment, the millennium, the executive judgment, are all part of the process of uniting all things together in heaven and on earth. All right? That's all a part of the plan of salvation. Not just the death of Christ on the cross, as important and as significant as that is, which is the cause of our eternal salvation and which none of the other things that Christ is doing would have been possible if that didn't take place. Notice John chapter 12, verse 31. It says, now is the judgment of this world. Now the ruler of this world will be cast out. And I, if I am lifted up from the earth, will draw all men in the King James or peoples and some other versions. And I've placed those in italics so that you can know that they are not in the original language. So if I am lifted up from the earth, I will draw all men or peoples to myself. That gives the impression that when Christ died on the cross, the only thing he was drawing to himself was human beings. All right? So I want you to realize that those words are supplied. And all actually means all. We can look in the book of Ephesians chapter 1 verse 10 for this. And actually you will see in this verse, I'm going to tease it out that there is the most holy place of the heavenly sanctuary ministry in that verse. Let's see if we can tease it out. Ephesians chapter 1 verse 10 says, that in the dispensation of the fullness of times, he might gather together in one all things in Christ, both which are in heaven and which are on earth, in him. All right. Now, why does it take God time to gather? Is he not strong enough? Is he not omnipotent? Can he not just snap his fingers and things happen? Can he not speak and things get done? If he can do that, and if he's all-powerful, why does it take him time? This calls for an explanation. Well, maybe he doesn't care about all the sin and the evil in the world. I just heard something tragic just before I started preaching today about a young man who just took his life. I mean, does God not have a heart of empathy? Why does he have to wait? That, that, that fullness of time points to the fact that there must be an explanation as to why God allows evil to exist. And the only explanation powerful enough is that there is a great controversy between Christ and Satan. And he cannot act in full power when he wants to until the entire universe is ready for this. 
And he's dealing with creatures that he has endowed with freedom of choice. I mean, we're all here today because we want to follow him. But do you and I always follow him in everything that he directs us to do? No, we don't. And he suffers through that. And he doesn't press, you know, he doesn't manipulate and he doesn't force and he doesn't coerce in order to get us to follow him because it takes time. That's how love operates. Now, what mechanism is God going to use to gather all things together in, in Christ, which are both on, in heaven and which are on earth, even in him? This is talking about at one meant. So the word atonement is not there. The word, you know, the, con the, 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 the phrase day of atonement is not there. But, that, but look at it. That's actually what's taking place in that text. And we could read Philippians chapter 2, verse 5 to 11, and Colossians chapter 1, verse 14 to 20, and similar thoughts are being presented in those chapters. So in, the, in, in Jesus' ministry in the most holy place, what he is actually doing is gathering the entire universe to himself through the plan of salvation. That's what he's actually doing. Notice this, I'll give you, that. this comes from the Bible Training School, December 1, 1907, and I think it perfectly crystallizes what I've been trying to get across. Not only man, but angels will ascribe honor and glory to the Redeemer. For even they are secure only through the sufferings of the Son of God. It is through the efficacy of the cross that the inhabitants of unfallen worlds have been guarded from apostasy. It is this that has effectually unveiled the deceptions of Satan and refuted his claims. Not only those that are washed by the blood of Christ, but also the holy angels are drawn to him by his crowning act of giving his life for the sins of the world. God's dealing with the rebellion of Satan is justified before the universe. The justice and mercy of God are fully vindicated so that through all eternity, rebellion will never again arise. Such is the import of his own words. When for the last time teaching in the temple, he said, looking forward to his approaching sacrifice, now is the judgment of this world. Now shall the prince of this world be cast out. And I, if I be lifted up from the earth, will draw all men unto me. But I want you to notice her commentary in the next sentence. Will draw all unto me. Not only earth, but heaven. For of him, the whole family in heaven and earth is named. Ephesians chapter 3, verse 15. Well, friends, this afternoon, Jesus offers the merits of his, of his blood in heaven on our behalf. The sanctuary not only uncovers the universal principles that we all must come into harmony with and understand, but it also reveals a Savior who is offering his blood. It also informs us that the Holy Spirit is sent in order to make effectual that which has been wrought by our world's Redeemer. And without that intercession, there's no way we can come into harmony with God. No way whatsoever. So I pray this afternoon that we really might renew our relationship with Him, 
that we might behold him in a way that we haven't before. He is about to come. He wants to come quickly. But he wants to see his reflection in each and every one of us. And he is longing for that to take place. So when the Holy Spirit begins to shed his light in your mind and in your heart, and you're tempted to close that door saying, Lord, you can have the rest of the house, but not this part. I pray that you'll open that door and that I will open that door because he wants to cleanse us through and through. He wants to see his reflection in each and every one of us. Let us not resist his drawing. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, what can we say for giving us Jesus, for giving us the ministry of the Holy Spirit? We are beginning to understand these things more from your perspective in that heavenly sanctuary. Lord, thank you for the rich deposit of truth that you have given to us as a people. We pray that these things might be our meditation. And as we meditate on these things, may we be fully transformed into the image of Christ and more prepared to be his ambassadors to a world that is dying to know him. I pray that you'll be with my brothers and sisters here at Advent Hope in Loma Linda. Lord, help us to work unitedly and together to hasten your return is my prayer in Jesus' name. Amen. This media was brought to you by Audioverse a website dedicated to spreading God's Word through free sermon audio and much more. If you would like to know more about Audioverse, or if you would like to listen to more sermons, please visit www.audioverse.org.